James chapter 3, and this morning we're just going to be looking at the first two verses of James chapter 3. So listen now to the reading of God's holy word. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word... Well, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. Well, gracious God in heaven, how we do praise you and thank you and rejoice that we have this great honor and privilege not only to gather together here, but to look to your word. We know that your word is our only infallible rule for faith and life, that it is our spiritual food that you provide for us. And so we pray that we would be have our hearts and our minds ready for this meal that you have prepared before us even this morning. And we pray for your blessing to be upon your word as it goes forth and the power of the Spirit. We pray that it would truly Find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. So we ask for your blessing now upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, for better or worse, teachers can often be one of the greatest influences in a person's life. And, of course, this can be at whatever age the, the student may be. It can be when you're in elementary age or high school or college or even beyond. You have a teacher, one simple word of encouragement or even one simple word of discouragement can have a great impact on, on your life. Now, it's likely the acknowledgement of this truth that has... Uh, led many Christians to choose homeschooling for their children uh, because they wonder if someone's going to have a potentially life-altering influence in our children's lives, well, it might as well be someone who shares our values and our worldview. Indeed, it might as well be the parents. Well, as our society and the educational system that it's created continues its descent into uh, degradation and godlessness. Well, such parental decisions seem to be increasingly affirmed. But even parents, in your particular role as a teacher for your children, you do wield a great influence just because of the very nature of what it is you're doing, right? Imparting new information or helping students to process old information in a variety of ways so that they can gain understanding, that they can gain knowledge, so that they can gain wisdom to know how to apply that knowledge in life and how they can be better equipped to function in the world around them. Certainly there are many of the goals that we have in teaching and instructing uh, our children. That's the role of a teacher, is to instruct them in such things or with such goals. And so certainly if knowledge is power, as some are uh, prone to say, well then those who impart knowledge 
indeed have a great deal of power and influence. Now, if this is true for those who would take on the responsibility for teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic, well, how about those who take on the responsibility in the church to teach the truth of God's Word? Teachers and preachers of God's Word are given an awesome responsibility, and with that responsibility comes a power and an influence that isn't to be taken lightly. When done rightly, with sincerity and truth, the teaching of God's Word can richly bless and prosper those who hear it. But when the Word of God is mishandled, either due to uh, just sheer ignorance or to purposeful, uh, due to purposeful deception, well, the effects can be eternally disastrous, not only for those who are taught, but even for the one who is teaching. And this is precisely what James seeks to warn teachers about in our passage this morning. Now, though the bulk of of chapter 3 deals with the tongue, James here uses teachers as an example of the important power of the tongue and the words that it speaks and the danger ahead for teachers who would seek to misuse that power. Now, remember that that James is writing primarily to a congregation of Jewish believers, and many of whom have been scattered to faraway places because of a persecution that broke out against uh, the church, as we see in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And James has been emphasizing to uh, these uh, scattered believers, he's been emphasizing their need for consistency between their profession of faith and the way that they would live out their lives. And he makes this emphasis, even in the midst of persecution, he urges that it isn't enough to simply profess faith in Christ, but you must also openly live out that faith to the glory of God. And we live out this faith by doing good works to the glory of God, as we considered last time. Well, certainly, a great good work that one could do would be to, to teach and preach God's Word. Right? To be faithful in spreading the Gospel and sharing it with those around you, uh, making disciples, and to do as Jesus commands in the Great Commission, uh, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Right? That's what Jesus charged the disciples in the church, to take this, uh, to uh, baptize, make disciples, and to teach them. So teachers, he's calling for teachers. Teachers and preachers of God's word then is certainly a a good work. In fact, we know that we could use more of them. This is what Jesus urged the disciples to pray for in, in Matthew 9 as he looks out over the crowd and he says that the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he's urging that we pray for those uh, to be able to teach and to preach, to go out and to work in the the fields uh, to reap the harvest of souls that have been prepared. And so we need more workers. We need more teachers and preachers and those who will faithfully labor in the Word to bring in that harvest of souls that the Lord has prepared. Well, this is a need 
that we know all too well. There currently seems to be a shortage of pastors or teaching elders in the church. And we don't have to look very far. Our, our sister congregation in San Antonio and our mission work in Houston are both without pastors at this time. And there are even a few other vacancies uh, in other congregations throughout the presbytery and also throughout the rest of the denomination. And of course, not only is there a lack of, of preachers and teachers, but where there is a lack of a pastor and teachers, there also tends to be a lack of solid, biblically reformed churches where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and the worship isn't a circus sideshow. Right? Such churches are are hard to find. And in many regions, faithful believers commit to traveling extended distances on the Lord's Day in order to attend a faithful, ter- a, a faithful church. They're very few and far between. And so we certainly need more faithful pastors and teachers. We also need more faithful churches. Indeed, this is something we ought to earnestly pray for, even as Jesus has charged. Such a great need, though. The charge that James now makes in verse 1 may come across as all the more surprising. James says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Well, if we need more teachers, why does James appear to be urging for fewer? Is, is, is James now in conflict with Jesus? Right? Last time we wondered whether James was in conflict with, with Paul. Is James now in conflict with Jesus? Well, of course not. Because the concern that James has is that there seem to be many, even too many, who were scrambling to be teachers in the church, but who were either unqualified or who pursued the office with impure motives. In fact, some of the problems James goes on to address later in this uh, letter about the tongue, about envy and self-seeking in verse 16, about quarrels and fights in the church in chapter 4, verse 1, and, and about speaking evil of one another instead of with love and understanding in chapter four eleven. All these problems could very well have stemmed from teachers mishandling the word Teachers who, because of their lack of qualification and sincerity of heart, really had no business teaching. Now this problem was likely inflamed by a particular Jewish cultural emphasis on the teacher, or we might know as the rabbi. And a Jewish rabbi was held in, in high esteem. And In fact, the word rabbi literally means my great one. And many Jewish families would kind of push at least one of their sons to aspire to this office of great honor and respect. And of course, even in that, right there, we see the problem. Right? It wasn't necessarily about qualification or calling, but the motivation was for the praise and the honor of men. Well, it seems as though some of this cultural mentality had now spilled over into the early church and that people were striving to be teachers and preachers so that they could receive the honor before men. But we don't often think about the one who 
goes into ministry to teach and preach the Word today with such lofty esteem as was formerly given even like a hundred years or so ago, well, some still do pursue the office with such self-motives for honor and prestige. I mean, take a look for a moment. Here I'm standing before before all of you, and if you're if you're not already sleeping, well, you're intently listening to what I have to say. And some people would really yearn to be the focus of such attention, to wield the power, the authority, and the influence that's bestowed upon a gospel minister. Now, of course, it isn't a bad thing to desire to be a, a pastor or an elder. In fact, Paul uh, charges in 1 Timothy 3, he says, if a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. But what's that desire rooted in? If it's rooted in a desire to use your gifts that God has given uh, to the best of your ability to serve and glorify Him, well then great. More power to you. We need more teachers and preachers with that kind of motivation. In fact, this is one of the, the uh, I believe it's one of the vows uh, for ministers in the Reformed Presbyterian Church is that they, yes, you know, is, as far as you know, is it for uh, no selfish reason that you're pursuing this office? Right? We have to, to vow that no, we're not pursuing it for these uh, self-righteous uh, and self-motivated Reasons, but it's for the glory of God and the call of God upon us that we pursue this office. Because if your motivation is merely for the honor, the position, and the power of influence, well then you ought not to bother. Because even right there, your motivation then would disqualify you for that office. Now often, to make matters worse, Not only are there those with improper motivations, but also those that aren't qualified in other areas who tend to seek the teaching office in the church. And the qualification that James would be concerned about wouldn't be education per se. Historically, Reformed and Presbyterian churches have required those pursuing ministry to attend seminary. And this is a, a good and critically important requirement. And I can testify, seminary prepared me well for, for ministry in many ways, giving me the tools that I need to, to faithfully proclaim God's word to you today. But certainly, not everyone who goes to seminary is suitable for gospel ministry. You know, the Apostle Paul was highly educated with what we might call a seminary education. And even James, though perhaps not as rigorously trained as Paul, seems to have been, seems as though he was also well-educated. But so were the scribes and the Pharisees. The very ones whom Jesus condemned as hypocrites, as a brood of vipers, and as whitewashed tombs. They had no business teaching the people, and yet they were. They had the training but they still were not qualified. And so a seminary education, though helpful, doesn't guarantee that someone is qualified to teach. What's more critical, though, is one's education with Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit in that one teaching. 
And so then we have uh, in the New Testament, we have the Lord greatly using uneducated men. And like Peter and John and the rest of the twelve, simple men who didn't have the education by the standard of the world, but they were with Christ. And they were taught by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And they grew to spiritual maturity. And that becomes the key qualification of anyone who would seek office in the church. Which again is why Paul lists as a qualification for elders in 1 Timothy 3, not a novice or not a, a new believer, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The one who teaches and leads in the church must be mature in faith. And this maturity in faith is reflected not only in having the proper motivations for serving in the office, but also a consistency between the way one speaks and professes and how they would live their lives. And this, of course, has been James' concern all along for all believers, not just for, for teachers. Right? That all, everyone would mature in faith. And it's a special concern, though, for those who would be teachers. And so James wants more teachers of God's Word. He wants more uh, in the church who will faithfully proclaim the Gospel. But he also realizes that not everyone has the gifts, the calling, the pure motivation, or the maturity to teach. And so he issues this warning, let not many of you become teachers. Now to further strengthen this warning, James... attaches two reasons why many shouldn't become teachers in the church, especially if they aren't qualified. And the first of these he notes in the second part of verse 1, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Those who teach in the church will face a greater judgment on the day of judgment than those who don't. And so this makes the the warning all the heavier and more severe. Because again, there are eternal implications at stake, not just for those who are taught, but for the one who's actually doing the teaching. With privilege and honor of office comes greater responsibility. And with greater responsibility, though, comes also greater accountability. Now, if God is the judge of judges and civil leaders whom He places over us, well, how much more so will He hold accountable those in the church who are entrusted with the teaching and proclaiming of His Word? This was the instruction of Jesus who taught His disciples about the faithful and unfaithful servants in Luke 12. Jesus says, For everyone to whom much is given, for him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask more. The greater responsibility and the greater duty, there is the greater accountability. And so pastors, teachers, and elders have been entrusted with the precious truth of the gospel. Right? God's own revelation of how He accomplished redemption for us from the bondage of sin through Jesus Christ. It truly is a great treasure. And those who are entrusted to teach others about it then are going to incur 
a stricter judgment. Now it's true that we'll all have to stand and give an account before God on the last great day. Right? Paul reminds us of, of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Right? So we're all going to stand before the judgment to give an account of what we've done, good or bad. So what does James mean here, though, when he says, when he speaks of a stricter judgment or a greater condemnation? Well, the stricter judgment comes about because the one who teaches, again, has greater power and influence than one who doesn't teach. See, if you don't take on the responsibility of teaching, your influence, for better or for worse, is just going to be less. And on the day of judgment you're only going to be held accountable for yourself. But for the pastor, for the elders, and the teachers in the church, they've been given a great responsibility to teach and instruct and to influence others in a positive way for the glory of God. And with such a great responsibility, on the last great day, pastors, elders, and other leaders in the church will have to give an account not only for their own lives and actions, but will also have to give an account of how their teaching and instruction influence the lives and actions of others. Now again, it's true, if you sin against God, well, that's your responsibility. But if I or one of the elders tell you it's okay to sin against God, or if we see you sin against God and we don't try to teach or instruct you differently, then we'll be held accountable to God for not being a good, faithful steward of what He's entrusted us with. Right, so there's the, there's the extra burden. We have this responsibility, and if we misuse it, and leads you astray, will we'll, we'll be held responsible. Now, of course, the same is true, though, for, for anyone who's been given authority, whether in the church or outside the church, including civil leaders and including parents. Now, this is a great responsibility placed upon parents in relation to their children. And it's for this reason that the writer of the Hebrews notes in Hebrews 13, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And so the writer of the Hebrews is reminding us that we should respect the authority of those over us because they're going to have to give an account of how they have managed, taught, and encouraged us according to God's word. Now, I want you to know carefully here what James says. He says that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Note his use of the word we. Right? That is, he includes himself in this camp who will face a, a, a stricter judgment. Right? He isn't lording his position over the people. No, he too will be held accountable before God for what he taught and wrote even in this very epistle that we're reading now. Right? This is the, through the Spirit of James is influencing us as we study this letter that he wrote. Right? 
And he'll be held accountable for these things. The Apostle Paul also understood this very heavy reality. He declared in in Galatians 1, very very stern, uh, harsh words. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So let him be accursed. Let him be condemned before God. But he doesn't just say that once. He goes on, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It was a warning worth repeating. And Paul, again, like James here, includes himself. If, they, if, if Paul came and he preached the word to them and then he comes back at some other time and says, hey, look, you know, what I said back before was wrong and you got to do this now and believe this. He's saying a curse be upon him if he or anyone else would do such a thing. Because they've been given more and re- entrusted with a great responsibility, again, those who teach in the church will face a much more severe judgment. Now, it doesn't exactly make you want to jump up here and start teaching, does it? Well, this heavy reality exists for those who sincerely strive to be faithful teachers... Well, how much more so then for those who purposely distort interests, twist the Scriptures to promote themselves and to serve their own sinful purposes? Many such deceivers and false teachers exist even today, and so this warning is even for them, and especially for them. They will receive a greater judgment. And we can think of a variety of the false teachers that are uh, around on the airwaves and uh, in you know in various places pushing false doctrines. But there's another reason. Not only is this is the judgment stricter, but James gives another reason as to why everyone ought not to aspire to be a teacher of the word, and why those who do ought to do so with humility and respect. And he says that's because the tongue is the most common cause of our stumbling into sin. It says in verse 2, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Again, first we want to note James' use of the word we. Here we have the humble uh, teacher, pastor, leader of the church, and the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He includes himself in this truth. We all stumble in in many things. That is, there are different ways in which we can sin. But, we all sin, and we all fall short of the glory of God, as Paul testifies uh, in Romans, uh, in the book of Romans. Now, the way some teachers talk and preach, and the way others would lift them up on a pedestal and even revere them, well, they seem to deny this truth. They deny that they sin or that they do wrong. They assert that their teaching is authoritative. Perhaps they may even go so far to say it's infallible and so ought not to be questioned. They may even say it's on par with or even supersedes the Scriptures themselves. Well, again, these are clearly false teachers, and yet people will blindly follow after them and will vigorously defend them. 
And they will do this even when scandal hits, right? As it so often does with those who would so exalt themselves in such a a powerful position. Scandal comes, but people continue to cling to their teaching. Well, of course, this is how cults get started, right? With the teachers denying they sin and their followers, followers attesting that they can do no wrong. But James is very clear here that we all stumble in sin. Even the most faithful of teachers and godly men will stumble. And of course, the easiest way to sin, the way we most often stumble, is in what we say or how we say it. Lies, deceptions, false statements... Coarse or vulgar language, a slip of the tongue, a misspoken word, words spoken rashly or in anger, hurtful words that destroy and tear down, even sincere words spoken at the wrong time, or the truth spoken without love can do great harm to others, causing us to stumble. And so controlling the tongue will become James' uh, James' main theme in the rest of chapter 3 here. But here we simply want to note that it's easy to sin with the tongue, And everyone does it. Well, this then puts teachers at a great disadvantage. right? Because the tongue is the very thing that they use most to communicate and teach. Teachers speak words for a living. And if it's so easy to sin with the tongue, well then teachers need to be able to control their tongue. Now certainly for the good teacher, this ought to... Uh, give great pause, right? How easy it would be with just a few quick, quick words to crush hope and to, to lead astray, to bring heartache and destruction. We ought to be mindful of that. And it's hard. And again, we don't always do it perfectly. We're, we're going to fall and stumble. In fact, if someone is able to not stumble with their speech, James then says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Now, by perfect though, James doesn't mean here sinless. Right? Otherwise, every mute person would be perfectly sinless. But James has already charged that we all stumble. So what does he mean here? Who is the perfect man? James is speaking of completeness or maturity in the same way that he did back in chapter 1, verse 4, when he said that we ought to pray for wisdom so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James is saying that the one who can control his tongue is the one who's mature in faith. And if he can control his tongue, which is certainly most difficult, will likely means that he can control other parts of the body as well. That is... A man mature in faith knows how to control his tongue and knows how to walk and live his life that reflects the truth of the gospel. This one would be qualified to teach. But sadly, there aren't enough like him and more than enough of those who can't control their tongue, who can't control their bodies, who can't control their lives. And so the the warning stands for all, It's these latter ones who ought to take special note. So then what are we to do? The need for teachers is great. 
But there are many who clamor for the office that aren't qualified, and those who may be qualified might be reluctant because of this heavy warning. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we can do is pray. Pray for more workers to attend to the harvest at hand. Pray for more teachers who will faithfully handle the word of truth. Pray for more faithful pastors, missionaries, church planners, elders, deacons, and Sunday school teachers to be raised up so that the gospel may spread and so that more faithful churches would be established. Beloved to God, I encourage you to pray also for me. That I would be faithful in study and preparation and teaching and preaching so that you might be fed, built up, and encouraged. Pray also for your elders and your deacons. Pray for those teaching the Sunday school classes. Pray that they would humbly understand and acknowledge the great privilege they've been given and the responsibility they've been entrusted with. Pray that they'd strive above all things to be faithful in their service to the Lord and His Word. And so we can pray. But a second thing you can do is is to consider consider what the Lord might be calling you to do. How He might be calling you to serve in the church. Consider prayerfully with fear and trembling and examine yourself, knowing full well now the, the warning that James has given. Now if you aren't yet mature in the faith, well don't rush in. Right again, because the consequences could be disastrous, even eternally so. But at the same time, you ought not to be content to stay in your immaturity either. You need to challenge yourself to grow. Challenge yourself to seek the grace and the wisdom of the Lord to grow to maturity so that when the Lord does call you to serve, you will be ready and equipped to do so for His glory and not for your own. And finally then, brothers and sisters, you can diligently read and study God's Word on your own, seeking the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit so that you will be fully equipped to test every teaching you hear, whether it comes from a book or on the radio or on the TV or a blog post, social media, or even from this pulpit. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to the small city of Berea and proclaimed the gospel, well, those studious and faithful Bereans searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And indeed, they discovered it was. And so don't neglect your duty to study the Word of God. And don't simply take what others give you as truth, but be like those Bereans. Search the Scriptures and test the teaching to see if it's true. A false teacher is going to be held accountable for his teaching and for leading others astray, but every individual will also be held accountable for what they have believed and professed to be true, regardless of who taught them. And so you need to be equipped in studying the Word. Now this doesn't mean that we can't trust anyone, not at all. But trust is built, and it's established over time as we look for true spiritual maturity and a consistency between words and life informed by the truth of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, 
let not many of you be teachers. Because we're all sinners. And if you take on the responsibility to teach, you will face a greater judgment. But, by the grace of God, may you all truly grow in grace and knowledge of God's truth. May you mature in faith so that you may truly be ready and equipped to teach, to serve, or to do what God will call you to do to help with the spread of the gospel and to bring glory and honor and praise to His name alone. Amen. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise You and thank You for Your Word and for the challenge for this warning. And It truly is a, a heavy warning that there will be a stricter judgment for those who teach, for those in positions of power and authority, not just in the church, but even as parents and as those in authority and in us, our civil leaders as well, that they will be held to account not only for their personal sins, but how they used the power and the authority that you gave to them. And whether they used it for your glory or where they used it to advance their own selfish agendas. And so, Father, we just pray that You would truly help us to be mindful of this. And yet we acknowledge that we need more teachers, preachers, and pastors, elders, and deacons in the church today. And Father, we do pray for our uh, brothers and sisters in San Antonio and, and Houston. And we ask, Father, that You would truly provide for them the, the under-shepherds, that they so desperately need. And for the other congregations throughout the presbytery and the denomination, and we know of even many places where there are no faithful congregations that are proclaiming Your truth. And so we pray, Lord, not only would You raise up those laborers, but that You would raise up these different fields to be harvested and to be, uh, that the gospel might spread and be proclaimed throughout all the land. And we do pray, Father, for just each of us here, that You would help us to grow and mature in our own faith, that we'd be diligent students of Your Word, that we might be uh, equipped thoroughly to test every teaching. And we know there's so many uh, distortions of Your truth in the world today. And some of them are very subtle. But we pray that we would study your truth. And that we would not take that for granted. And that we would test the scripture, or test these teachings to see if they hold up to the standard of your scriptures. So we praise you and thank you, Lord, as we're even reminded of the glorious gift that you've given to us in your word. That it truly is our only infallible rule our standard for faith and life. And it truly is a standard. It's the, why, by the means by which we're to measure teaching and by which we're to measure our lives and to be guided in them. Father, we pray that You would help us to be mindful of these things. And we pray that You would help us to continue to be a beacon of light in this community. And that as the Word continues to go forth through here and other faithful congregations, and even throughout this region, the gospel would spread. And that there would be a true revival and renewal. A desire to serve you and to seek you out. 
even in the midst of a society that is increasingly growing wicked and the rebellion against you and your word. Uh, this will become all the more important. And so we pray that you would truly equip us, that you would imp- impress these truths upon our hearts by your Spirit, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.